0: In a world where points depend on hinges, there are hinge points inside us all.
1: History on a segue.
0: It's overdetermined.
1: We are the points that our hinges have been seeking.
0: What this podcast asks is. What if agriculture fail or epic win?
1: What if it was Johnny Bango Pit? What if the Ottomans had AK-47? Maybe climate change wasn't good enough. What if the Ottomans had lightsabers? What if the buffalo killed the Ottomans? What if Santa Claus was real, like an actual guy who gave presents every year? This
0: is Hinge Points. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Hinge Points. I'm Danny Bessner, normally from the American Prestige Podcast, here as always with Matt Chrisman. And we are very excited to welcome to the podcast today one of the great podcasters of all time. That is Everett Rummage from The Age of Napoleon. Everett, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, this episode is going to be a little different than the other ones. It's going to be kind of a a lightning round of Napoleon, hinge points, and alternative histories. But before we get into that, Everett, could you just maybe explain why Napoleon is such an important historical figure? A little bit of a ridiculous question, but let our audience know why we need to know everything about Napoleon. Okay. So, beyond the obvious,
2: that, you know, he's probably one of the greatest generals in history, almost certainly the greatest of the modern era. Um, But beyond that, you know, his greater significance, um, Hegel famously called him history on horseback. You know, so what he meant by that was that Napoleon was uh, an agent of change. Basically, wherever his armies went, he brought um, new modern ideas uh, about law, about government, about administration uh, with him. And uh, that he spread, you know, the what was left of the French Revolution to the rest of Europe beyond France's borders. He also, you know, he wiped away the old order. So even though he ultimately failed in his bid to, you know, become kind of a universal ruler of Europe, he did uh, sort of wipe away the old world, uh, wipe the slate clean for uh, a period of incredible change um, in the 19th century. So... um, you know, you can see him as a as a guy. You know, as the the usher with the big uh, with the big shepherds thing, pulling someone off. You know, pulling feudalism off the stage so that um, you know modernity, you know, real true modernity can come out and and say its piece on the stage.
0: Perfect. So he's a very important person, Matt. Do you want to add anything to why you think Napoleon's such a central figure?
1: Well, obviously, for all the reasons uh, Everett elucidated, to the, just the personal, you know set of assets he had and the moment that he lived during allowed him to achieve the greatness that we remember him for largely by embodying the spirit of the age, you know, understanding the way things were moving and tacking with the wind, basically, you know, that's how he goes from being an idealistic young Jacobin to the ender of the revolution, because he recognizes where the greater forces are flowing and uh, and makes it his mission to be there, you know, to, to, to stay in the game. But, you know, if that's true, then when we see him fall, uh, we're maybe seeing, you know, the limits uh, of his ability to recognize the moment. Uh, but in his career, and we're going to talk about it in this episode, there are these uh, pivotal moments, these hinge points, as we like to call them, where there is this sort of thinning, between the uh, possible, you know, courses of history, and where uh, uh, something, a, a decision being made differently, or a series of decisions all contingently made, uh, arrived at differently, uh, sees uh, him no longer, you know, riding the wave as, of history as we understand it, but building uh, an alternative uh, future to the one that we uh, ended up with.
0: And I think this brings us naturally to our first hinge point, which is a really interesting one that Matt and I have been talking about for a bit. And Everett, we'd love to get your take on this, obviously. And what, what, what would have happened if Napoleon allies himself with Toussaint L'Ouverture? Maybe you could let people know who Toussaint was and why he was important and how he does or doesn't relate to Napoleon before we play out this hinge point.
2: Sure. So very briefly, um, you know, the, uh, at the outbreak of the French Revolution, uh, Haiti, or as it was called at the time, Saint-Domingue, um, is probably the most profitable, you know, mile for mile, probably the most profitable colony in the world. Um, it's a huge proportion of the French economy is just devoted to, to commerce with Saint-Domingue. And, um, but the revolution sort of shatters the social order on Saint-Domingue, just as it did in France. And just as it happened in France, uh, a civil war breaks out, although it's odd because it has the, um, you know, it has sort of the ideology of the revolution tied to it, but it's in this totally different context of a colonial slaveholding society where 90% of the people are enslaved blacks. And Toussaint Louverture, um, as the um, the black slaves revolt um, to, you know, reclaim their freedom, Toussaint Louverture quickly emerges as the paramount leader among the different, although far from the only one, but he's, you know, quickly recognized as the paramount leader among the rebel slaves. He um, very wisely um, sees that there is an opening for an alliance with France, the colonial power that his people had risen up against Uh, because of the ideology of the revolution, the um, uh, more radical uh, figures taking the coming to the fore in France um, that creates an opening. And it seems sort of strange, but, you know, the these former enemies are able to form a really strong working alliance that ultimately results in the victory of the, you know, Republican slash rebel slave side in this civil war. Um, Toussaint Louverture, the country, is horribly devastated. Um, I mean, really, I mean, beyond what we could probably imagine, unless you're from, like, Syria— but Toussaint Louverture emerges as the leader of this new state, which has a very shaky but real um, devotion to kind of racial pluralism um, and sort of a free Republican ideology. Um, and But the country's in horrible chaos. Um, the devastation from the, the, the Civil War is just horrific. And Toussaint Louverture decides the only way he can really uh, impose order is to impose a very authoritarian constitution with himself as governor for life, um, with a huge amount of autonomy from France. And this is where this is a, a you know a very rare instance in history where you have a, a total a decision of one person deciding the destiny of millions because Napoleon writes a letter to, to, to Toussaint. Accepting him as governor, accepting the constitution, and sort of opening the door to future collaboration, but he never sends that letter. It goes back; it never it never goes into the outbox. And instead, he decides to side with the planters to turn against Toussaint Louverture and send an army to Haiti to reimpose white supremacy. Uh, that army is defeated in a bloody and horrific war. And, you know, the rest is history. Haiti becomes independent, but is ruined and never really recovers, um, is international pariah for uh, about, about a century. And, uh, yeah, it's a very tragic end to a story that had a lot of very hopeful elements to it.
0: But in our world, Everett, let me tell you this, Napoleon does send that letter. And then let's go from there. So let's imagine Napoleon sends that letter. Matt, what do you, what do you see happening there?
1: Uh, I mean, it, it opens up this, this vast uh, array of possibilities because the reason that Napoleon is fixated on, on reasserting control of Haiti is because he sees it as the springboard uh, for his attempt to turn the Caribbean into a French uh, zone to sort of make up for the fact that the British had completely closed off the Mediterranean by that point. Uh, and the United States at that point, uh, which, you know, did, had not yet acquired uh, the Louisiana Purchase, which is only a consequence of the failure of the Haiti invasion that Napoleon orders, the possibility of a French invasion of the United States, its soft underbelly in its very underpopulated uh, southern reaches. I mean, it it, it gives – because when you see what actually happened when Napoleon was confined to a European-based theater of, our oper- of operations, uh, he was essentially bo- – he was – he couldn't overcome that that final uh, element of British naval supremacy. Uh, but here you could establish a French military power on the American continent and compete for resources and power and population there instead of uh, in you know Russia, which we've already had to end up doing it.
2: There's also a possibility, um, which is – and this is something I, I would really take with a grain of salt because it's something you know that was said after the fact – um, it's a very romantic notion, and romantic notions often um, get you know go to the wayside when they meet the uh, you know when the rubber meets the road, so to speak. But someone asked this question to to Saint Louverture's son, and he said that his father's dream had always been, once Haiti was um, secured and peace was established, to lead an army to West Africa to attack the slave factories and to destroy the slave trade. And, you know, again, very fanciful notion, very romantic, um, but if it had happened, the whole world economy of that, you know, that mid-19th century period, slave, slavery in the New World was a huge component, you know, uh, of the, that, that Caribbean sugar uh, economy, which was a huge driver of uh, European capitalism. So if all of a sudden someone had come along and kicked out, you know, the main support pillar of that whole sector of the world economy, um, that opens up a, you know, a whole other Pandora's box of of possibilities, you know, far beyond um, Louisiana and Haiti and the Caribbean.
0: So that's really interesting. So let's take that as our starting point. Napoleon and Toussaint um, make an alliance. So this would change a number of things. One, you now have like a, a, a solid French-Haitian. Zone, a, a transatlantic relationship between Republican France and Republican Haiti in the Caribbean and in Western Europe. What happens then? So let's say they go into West Africa and they actually wind up um, impeding the slave trade 50 years before it is a formally, a 60 years before it's formally ended in the United States, 80 years before it's formally ended in, in Brazil. Um, what specific effects would that have on international capitalism? And then another question that I have for you guys is, what does an alliance like that do in terms of Florida, which at that point is very open? Um, France is obviously premised based in in louisiana but could you see a southeastern united states that becomes part of a french zone of influence so you would have basically four bases one in france one in the caribbean one in west africa one in the southeastern united states what would happen then to international capitalism and how would international capitalism's history look different
2: well um i mean obviously that gives the french kind of one really key ingredient to um you know capitalist development which is the the massive amounts of capital that are generated from, from, um, you know, these, these, uh, colonial economies. And if, um, you know, at that time, the, um, kind of the future industrial heartland of Europe is under French domination, the Rhineland, Belgium. Um, and, um, so you, you could see how that could, you know, that, that system could have produced, um, you know a real you know France really lagged behind in industrialism in the 19th century in our in our universe but maybe you know that the ingredients are there certainly for them to have been a major player in in um, industrial development um, if they had held on um, as you say
1: and to build an alternative to british led slave capitalism which ends up dominating the entire global global order i mean Napoleon would have to make abolishing slavery like a key to his strategy in America because that's his force multiplier. It's it's his yeah. uh, ace in the hole, and that's why I honestly imagine, like in the in the weak state that the United States was in at that early era, largely because it was held back from development by these uh, uh, aristocratic interventions in this constitutional system by this like slaveocracy that at that point is really just presiding over a uh, a nascent social, like a political economy south of the Mesa Dixon. Uh, And if, you know, a Toussaint led army marches in through Louisiana, promising freedom to every slave that they encounter, uh, I can't I can honestly see them uh, rolling up through basically the entire slave south and turning the United States into just its uh, uh, its trade and and industry based uh, northern half and then creating this, I think, inevitable then uh, federalist uh english alliance uh against this uh, threat uh to anglo Dominion and then you get instead of like the quasi- war we get with France during John Adams administration an actual land war with france uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh over this question the it would be around the same time
2: okay. and it's a little it's a little frightening to think what that might have done to i mean that certainly would have uh had an effect on yeah you know, what 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 would the reaction to that have been in America not only in terms of uh, military and diplomatic response, but what effect would that have had on American society I mean I, I hate to say it, but you could really easily imagine you know with the idea of this you know kind of black boogeyman figure taking over the south um i mean does it does uh, you know the rump America become like you know a, a proto third reich white supremacist state that it's you know devoted to the destruction of the black race i mean it's it's ugly to think about, but we've seen that that fear of the, the other is a huge factor in American history as it exists now. You know, imagine if there had been an, a real existential threat coming from that other uh, at the very beginning of the country's history. It's, you know, not pleasant to to
1: think what that would have done to people's outlooks and, and views. But, you know, at the same time, I, in that fight, I honestly think there's a good chance that the the French forces win. Uh, and if that happens, then maybe you have, you know, broken the back of this social formation that was going to destroy the world, or at the very least, create a context where you have this uh, this rabid dog uh, settler capitalism trying to fight for its life in this context against this new, you know, global trade order that is turning into capitalism, but turning into capitalism as Marx imagined it going, you know, creating a, a, a unified social pole that responds As citizens, you know, uh, people who imagine themselves part of some abstract community uh, coming into counter with capitalism and being alienated along class lines, uh, coming into class consciousness and then expressing themselves politically through that class consciousness and get the the internal road uh, to socialism through capitalism that uh, Marx theorized occurring Uh, in the moment of its birth, you know, when he was there for it. I mean, he was wrong, but how could he know otherwise? He lived in Europe. He didn't realize that the real uh, structures that were going to dominate and and define what it means to be a member of a class, what it means to be a citizen of a country, uh, was being done in the new world, uh, in the United States most specifically.
0: Let's talk about Napoleon for a second in this world. Does Napoleon... Now that he has this Caribbean empire to really protect, that's also part of this ideological project, and he's going into the southeastern United States and let's say even marching north and, and facing some Federalist. Confederate, future Confederate foe at some point. What happens in Europe? Does he still go East? Does he still try to invade Moscow? Because I imagine the supply logistics would make that virtually impossible. So you don't have a Waterloo. You don't have an expansion eastward. Is that correct? It's more of a focus on the Western Hemisphere than what we actually wound up having, which was the French attempt to basically create a continental European empire. Can't do
1: it! Can't do A continental European empire! And the other thing, you know...
2: Napoleon was, not, Napoleon was not ideologically committed to a war with Russia. He, his vision always met, was basically France and Russia dividing Europe between them. And he invaded Russia because they were not adhering to the continental system, which was his sort of um, economic blockade, economic war, you could almost say, on, on Great Britain. But with this imagined French colonial empire in the New World— I'm not sure he has the same need to wage economic war on Britain in the way he did with the continental system. Um, And so I think in that circumstance, the rationale for uh, the invasion of Russia kind of evaporates. And Franco-Russian relations are probably much better. The French are much more likely to say, you know, okay, if you've got to do a little bit of trade with the Brits, you know, for your economy – you know, whatever, let's focus on the big issue, which is how we're going to divide up the continent between us. You know, where where's the line in, in Poland or, or Belarus or whatever, where our influences, um, you know, trade off. And so, you know, I think that that could have averted um, almost certainly the biggest mistake of uh, Napoleon's career. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it, so much of – especially the latter half of the Napoleonic Wars are about these economic issues. And so without the with, – with the ac- economic picture totally different, you don't see things play out the same way.
0: You, you basically get capitalism with French characteristics, which right. would be a more artisanal <laughs> – more artisanal capitalism, a capitalism focused more on guilds and things along those lines, which is very different from the hyper-steroidal – industrial capitalism of Britain. So you, you also have the creation of a different order. And, and guys, I have a question for you. In this world, is Napoleon, because he's not expanding too much eastward for economic reasons, is he able to keep the German principalities effectively pacified, therefore preventing a unified German nationalism from emerging?
2: I think German nationalism was already emerging. I mean, I think the moment that the, moment that the, the French walked into Germany... That was kind of an inevitability. Um, But the question is, you know, where and how does that find expression? You know, because there are circumstances, you know, there was a lot of uh, pan Latin American feeling after the Latin American wars of independence and nothing ever came of it. So, you know, it's a question, you know, what, uh, you know, how does that find expression if, if there's no kind of political military route to a German nation? You also, there's also the question of, you know, there's at this point, by the, by the latter half of the Napoleonic Wars, there's uh, millions of Germans who are citizens of France. And so, do, do they maintain their German identities? Um, do they continue speaking German, but maybe have a French identity as well, like people in Alsace, in, in our universe? Or, or, or do they fully assimilate and become just French people who are all, you know, have names like Christman or whatever, <laughs> And, and you know so that's an open question, I would say. Um, but it would be a very interesting. And, and probably I would imagine if Napoleon had somehow won the Napoleonic Wars, the German question would have been a a um, significant uh, factor in European affairs in kind of the
1: next generation. Absolutely, in ways that we can't even really imagine, because yeah. the context is going to be so different. But yeah, he's going to have to manage, because Germany is always the problem, right, of Europe. <laughs> Napoleon said, if the Holy Roman
2: Empire did not exist, France would have to invent it to keep the Germans weak. And he tried to d- invent his own version of it. So maybe that would have worked, who knows? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, and you could uh, also imagine, uh, particularly beginning in the middle of the 19th century, as racial thinking becomes more and more prominent, or maybe it doesn't in this world, but a, kind of a neo Carolingian empire. You know, you ha- you have a f- new form of European nationalism that's not organized around particularities, but is organized around like a Charlemagne, uh, an imagined image of the Gauls coming back together. And then you get a totally different form of German nationalism. And, and here's the question. What, what happens to our boy Marx? Does Marx not go to Jena? Does he go to the Sorbonne? And is Marx now a theorist of, instead of industrial Anglo German capitalism, which is really what he was from Germany writing in the UK, does he develop an entire new theory of capitalism based on, again, capitalism with French characteristics? I mean, you know,
2: Marx was from the Rhineland. He was from an area that was a part of, you know, Napoleon's empire. And, you know, his background, you know, coming from a, a converted Jewish family, his father was a, you know, a. a you know tech, you know minor technocrat. that's like you know the you could not you know if you're trying to come up with a theoretical person who would support French rule in Germany, that's exactly the profile of person that you would you would. so yeah, my guess would be that um, you know who knows maybe his fam- maybe his family goes Catholic instead of Protestant. and you know jean Marie Marx is the most famous French philosopher of the nineteenth century.
0: That's a good one. Uh, all right, guys, let's go to our next hinge point, which is which is probably the one that people always ask about Napoleon. And and let's just bring it out there. Napoleon wins at Waterloo. What happens? Why is it important? So maybe Everett, maybe you could just set the scene of Waterloo for people who might not be Napoleon scholars, and why that's such a itself a hinge point in history.
2: Well, this is to me kind of a deceptive hinge point because um, if you look at sort of the broader picture and on the eve of Waterloo. Napoleon's situation looks completely hopeless. I would compare early in the Napoleonic Wars, Napoleon is sort of like, imagine a boxer who's maybe not the strongest, but is very fast and has a very good reach. So, you know, you can get the most muscly boxer in the universe to fight him, but if he can't land a blow, he's going to win. And that's sort of how Napoleon fought these wars. His enemies always had more troops, more resources, but because Napoleon had this huge empire and this very fast-moving and huge army, um, he's able to, when a threat emerges, he's able to swoop in and neutralize it before it really turns into an existential threat. And you see that again and again in the Napoleonic Wars. But by Waterloo, you know, he's basically restricted to France's borders as they exist today. There's enemy armies all around. Um, and his only real hope is to sort of Roll sevens every time. He's got he's got about he's got about one hundred and seventy five thousand men to work with. He's got well over two hundred thousand in Belgium with Wellington and Blucher, but he's also and that's the force that defeats him at Waterloo. But to the south on the Rhine, Prince Schwarzenberg has two hundred and fifty thousand men opposed by twenty five thousand French troops. So that's dangerous. The Russians have two hundred thousand more men coming that direction. There's men coming from northern Italy through that route, and the Spanish are mobilizing their armies to invade southern France. So the idea that Napoleon could have, you know, like I said, rolled sevens every time and defeated all of these forces with a smaller force without losing too much so that he wouldn't be able to go defeat the next one. But even if he'd done that, there's his enemies have reserves to draw on. And it's just – it's I mean – you can't say it's impossible, but even for a man like Napoleon, it's just – it's hard to imagine him being that successful, especially because by this point, the enemy armies you – know Napoleon was very fond of saying to, about his enemies, I'm going to teach them a lesson. And in a sense, he literally did because every time he beat them, they learned from his methods. And so by 1815, on the eve of Waterloo, the armies opposing him are very good. And, you know, the, the the bad officers have been disgraced in the field and lost their jobs, and the good officers have risen to replace them. They've, they've copied things from the French and, and learned their own methods. So these armies are almost evenly matched, unlike at the beginning of the Napoleonic Wars when the French had a clear advantage. So to me, it's hard to imagine him winning. But this is an interesting question. You know, what if... That war, that final war had been bloodier. What if the British and the Prussians were not the ones to defeat Napoleon? You know, what if, um, you know, one thing to keep in mind about the British, they had never faced Napoleon himself. They had always fought in, in the Peninsular War, which was a lower priority for the French, almost like the Western allies in World War II. You know, people, you know, hey, you guys did great against the B team. Let's see how you fare against the Imperial Guard and Napoleon himself. And Waterloo was the first test of that, and they did they did have success. But you know the 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 kind of narrative of the Napoleonic Wars would have been very different if the only time the British had actually faced, you know the the A team of the French army they had lost, um, people would probably look at the Napoleonic Wars as, you know, uh, a, a Austro-Russian victory more than anything else, with the British playing kind of a supporting role. And that would have had consequences for European diplomacy uh, in the 19th century, and I think it would have had a lot of domestic consequences in Britain, because the Waterloo myth was was really uh, vital, even I think still is, a vital
1: part of British national identity. Yeah, Wellington sure as hell wouldn't have been PM if he'd lost at Waterloo. Right. and. And, yeah, maybe the Chartist movement is able to gain more traction against yeah the the yeah the regime of victory if they were just a bunch of losers who got uh, their asses saved by the fucking czar.
2: Right. Exactly. The, the post Napoleonic War period is really a bad period in Britain. Yeah. Um. And 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 I think um you know the country is in a certain sense held together by that sense of victory. Um. And you know in in our world we don't get the Great Reform Act until the eighteen thirties. Maybe you know that radicalism in the in the uh, late teens and 20s is much more intense and we see something more dramatic happening in, in post-napoleonic britain
0: yeah absolutely And so what we're really talking about then is less a Napoleon victory, but less of a Napoleon loss. And to me, as a diplomatic historian that raises questions about the concert of Europe, what Mm -hmm. if you don't get a concert of Europe? What does that say? And I I should also add that a lot of historians will, of course, argue there was no real concert of Europe. You have the Austro-Prussian War. You have the Franco-Prussian War. You have the many colonial wars of the 19th century. Crimea. Crimea, of course but so so what if napoleon is not as knocked out what happens to european international history if waterloo is less of a defeat more of a like just a lesser loss
2: you know that if you imagine a, a war of the 7th coalition which was the the war that ended at waterloo being much longer and much bloodier um maybe there's not the appetite in europe to allow the french to regain their status as a great power after those events so maybe You know, you have, uh, you know, like a little little mini rump France that's sort of as big a player in European affairs as Spain or Portugal or something. And that, you know, obviously would have put, you know, the 19th century on a completely different trajectory, um, certainly in Europe and probably, you know, in the places Mm -hmm. the French colonized certainly as well.
0: Do you then see an Anglo-German rivalry that's focused less on naval warfare, which is what happens in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and more on building up armies? Oh,
2: that's interesting.
0: I'm not sure that the British
2: really have an aversion to building up land forces on the continent. Um, So maybe they would have sought a proxy for that. Um, You know, maybe – actually, maybe the the rump French state is a British – you know, satellite or protectorate. And that's sort of, uh, you know, the cat's paw for for the British uh, on the continent. Um, but I don't know, that's an interesting question. You know, the British have always, um, you know, in Europe kind of divide and conquer has always been more of their more of their style. Maybe you see, um, or, you know, maybe they buddy up with the Austrians, who knows? You know, I, I think that's, um, it's a really an open question, just that, you know, things would have been very different if, you know, because the way things worked out, um, the War of the Seventh Coalition was just kind of seen as an aberration, uh, you know, a weird thing that happened because Napoleon was able to break out of jail. Um, maybe if it had lasted a longer time, it would have, you know, changed, um, changed people's minds and forced them to to look at look at European diplomacy in a different way.
0: And that that, that question is raised to me because I think the major reason the United States in the 20th century became a world empire is because France fell so quickly to the Nazis. Because I think in the Anglo-American imagination, France is always viewed as a bulwark against Germany, which is essentially considered another industrial capitalist rival. So if you remove that bulwark a century and a half earlier, that to me almost engenders a stronger pull a stronger impulse to colonialism maybe also in the United States because now Britain is even more powerful than it wound up being in the 19th century controlling, let's say, Normandy and you have like kind of a a rump Vichy-esque French state throughout the 19th century, Um, which is also crucial because, I mean, 19th century French thought is very critical for the development of liberalism. You know, it it has probably a tempering influence on liberalism. I mean, Benjamin Constant is the first liberal. So then liberalism itself... In a, in a world where Napoleon loses Waterloo, less I think is on a almost totally different trajectory. Without that sort of, I mean, to put it to put it bluntly, like this humanistic French liberalism that is not quite as found in the more laissez-faire version of British liberalism that winds up being instantiated in the United States. So this is going to bring us now to um, our final in the lightning round of Napoleon hinge points. And this one's a really interesting one. And that is, what if Napoleon had converted to Islam? And so, Matt, why don't you talk about this and really set the stage of, of what you're imagining and, and why this would be a world historical change?
1: <clears throat> when Napoleon was still just a humble general in the French army who coming off the massive triumph of the Italian campaign, uh, and was able to basically write his own ticket, he proposed an invasion of uh, Egypt with the idea of uh, cutting off England from their uh, their Indian holdings. And he had success against the Mamluk forces there and was able to install himself as essentially the viceroy uh, of Egypt and considered during this time, while he was trying to uh, 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 get some sort of Hearts and Minds campaign going with the uh, at least the uh, elite there in, Egypt, in the Egypt's Egyptian society. He uh, toyed with the idea of converting to Islam and becoming uh, Ali Pasha Napoleon, the uh, independent Egyptian ruler, uh, and then operate as a sovereign. Uh, stop! Stop the rat race up the chain of French politics and de- decapitate and replace politics in the Near East.
2: Yeah, and he, this came, it it seems like such a fanciful idea, but it came really close to happening. I mean, this is, I think, after the Toussaint hypothetical, this one is probably the one that came closest to fruition, which is, um, you know, he went to Al-Azhar, which is the, you know, kind of a, almost like a a Sunni college of cardinals. It's the most, um, you know, the most eminent collection of Islamic scholars in the Sunni world. And he sort of said, what would it take for you guys to endorse my regime? And they said, you have to convert to Islam. And he said, okay. And they said, not just to you, though. It has to be the whole army and all your officers. And that was a bridge too far. So it really came close to happening. You know, if, if kind of the mood had been different in that room, maybe it would
1: have happened. Circumcisions were going to be an issue, though.
2: Yeah, circumcisions. Was, they
1: could have, but he, I think he might have been able to negotiate on that point
2: he specifically mentioned circumcision and giving up wine as being too much to ask uh, his troops to do.
1: Yeah. But But if he does it, if he goes for it, then you still have this incredibly dynamic, powerful figure who's able to marshal forces of history, like nobody else of his generation. But instead of being at the heart of European politics uh, and colonial politics, he is instead now uh, charged with taking uh, possession of a peripheral Nation with a much more nascent economic and military uh, institutions. And the question becomes how is he able to uh, deal with those challenges trying to now compete for power sort of from behind the eight ball relative to Europe? Everett, let's play this out. What do you think happens? There,
2: There is kind of something I always like to look at when you're sort of indulging in these hypotheticals is, you know what's a real-life analog we can look at as the model for the hypothetical? And to me, the obvious one here is the man who, who after the French were defeated in Egypt, you know, it was kind of a jump ball almost. You know, would the Mamluks come back into power? Would the Ottomans assert direct control? Would the British turn it into some kind of protectorate? And the man who ultimately comes out on top is sort of, you know, not someone who looked like a candidate at the beginning of the process, this man named Muhammad Ali. He came from modern-day Greece. He was, I believe, an ethnic Albanian um, who worked for the Ottomans. He was like a mercenary. Well, semi-mercenary, semi-soldier who worked for the Ottomans. And he ultimately comes out on top as the ruler of Egypt after, you know, the dust settles with this power struggle. And he engages in a really aggressive program of modernization, uh, building a modern modern civil service, modern fleet, modern army, founding European-style educational institutions, And in a certain sense, he's kind of the founder of modern Egypt. Um, And so you can look at, you know, I, I think the jumping off point, looking at what Napoleon could have done there, is, you know, what did Muhammad Ali do, you know, 10, 20 years later? He actually had a lot of success and, you know, didn't quite succeed in turning Egypt into a modern country that could compete with the European countries, but he was able to do a lot. So I think... Any discussion of Napoleon, you know, being active in Egypt um, has to start with the fact that it seems like that it was actually fertile ground for the type of modernization program he probably would
0: have tried to do. So does this mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Napoleon is in Egypt and instead of doing the whole Napoleonic Wars like they actually happened in history, he sets a base in Egypt and he begins a program of modernization and development as an Islamic leader there. So instead of getting the Napoleonic Wars, you have Napoleon basically stay there until the 1820s, let's say 1820, 1825, and he has a base in Egypt and he has a sort of Republican French um, base in France and he, he didn't do the German campaigns and he didn't do the Russian campaigns. So now it's 1825, 1830. Napoleon has those two power bases. What is going on in Europe then? What is going on with Napoleon? Because I assume that his ambition, let's, let's assume that as, as static and unchanged, that he still wants to basically be the world historical figure who transforms continental Europe and now the Islamic world. Maybe he fashions himself as, as sort of like this, this, this paragon of Islam, a kind of um, a Cyrus figure. What, um, as Cyrus vis a vis Judaism in a sense? So what happens? Well, I think that probably the
2: French would have been defeated in Europe by the Allies much quicker. Um, I, and I actually would say that probably what happens, probably that there's no version of the French Revolution at that point that doesn't end with the general taking power. Um, so, you know, maybe this is, you know, instead of that, uh, you know, maybe Marshal Bernadotte is the, you know, the, the Napoleon figure in this universe. Um, but none of those guys were as good as Napoleon and none of them were as lucky as Napoleon, <laughs> So, you know, uh, maybe by 1806, 1807, 1808, there is no more revolutionary France. And maybe kind of the, you know, that sort of uh, wiping the slate clean that Napoleon's conquests did in Europe doesn't come to pass. So maybe you get a Europe that's much less developed, you know, politically, economically, socially, um, and then, you know, a rising power in the East— You know, you could maybe imagine a world in which, um, you know, there's the 19th century sees something close to parity between, you know, let's say um, Turkey, modern day Turkey, the Levant and Egypt, um, you know, either from Napoleon conquering these areas or the local authorities having to copy his methods to resist him, um, you know, much like happened in Europe. Um, so maybe you get a 19th century where, um, you know, the the Ottoman Empire and Egypt are players in the same way that the European powers were players. And that, you know, maybe there's Islamic colonies um, and we get to see, you know, how that sort of cultural and political and economic setup would have approached colonialism. It's, a, it's another one where there's, you know, the, the Pandora's box is just absolutely massive. And you could see this you know, working out any number of different ways.
0: And to me, the most interesting, or one of the most interesting things is, what if you get a sort of um, Egypt-based liberalism? Because Napoleon is the one who spreads liberalism from France to continental Europe. But what if he begins and takes those ideas seriously and begins to develop them more in the, um, in the Levant than continental europe and so you you have a totally different ideological history of europe that that it maybe is is still way more monarchist than it wound up being way more authoritarian way more focused on that and sort of you get the the blending of a french style liberal capitalism in um the middle east as opposed to elsewhere
2: yeah i think it's interesting you know um like in the in the early 19th century there was this idea that you know uh you know the British represented laissez-faire. You know the 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 really hard laissez-faire version of liberalism, and then you know the, the American system is a more sort of a holistic view of capitalist development, shall we say? Maybe in this world, that's associated with Egypt, and that makes you think. You know, because you know once ideas get associated with certain regions, cultures, etc., they sort of take baggage from that so maybe that you know view of the world gets to be seen as an islamic view of the world rather than a a christian view of the world and that could you know maybe in a sense um you know be be a barrier to those ideas entering um the european mainstream as they did in, in our universe
0: you also get permanent french access to the oil fields that will be discovered later which is actually or a permanent Napoleonic aspect in, in this sort of liminal space polity. So you you maybe would get a capitalism that is informed by this, the the artisan centered nature of French capitalism. But then in the in the you know early twentieth century, this polity finds oil, and then you get this this marker of industrialization. Matt, Matt, what do you what do you think Napoleon's conversion impact might have had? However, you want to take it in whatever direction.
1: Yeah, I just think about what would happen in France if you don't have a Napoleon defeat to fill that spot. Yeah, I think you definitely have a France that's defeated much, more, uh, much earlier, uh, where you have a, a restoration much earlier, uh, which, of course, only serves to bottle up a lot of social uh, unrest and, and alienation that, in the world where Napoleon becomes emperor gets vented off in his series of conquests and, and wars and like a, a war-based state that sort of disciplines and organizes all of the discontent of this rapidly modernizing society. Uh, and in this world, it's you world, if you're just getting a succession of these attempts to af- affirm, uh, a monarchial center, uh, you know, at the behest of, uh, a European, uh, like dynastic houses that have a vested interest in preventing uh, those those evil spirits from getting loose in the world again, uh, then you I, I think you still end up having to have some sort of uh, maybe early ignition of a great power conflagration, sort of defining uh, all of nineteenth century uh, politics.
0: So let's go to our actual final hinge points, and this is. What if Napoleon invaded England? The year is 1804, and Napoleon turns west. What happens, Everett? Describe the scene.
2: So, um, in the, around this time, Napoleon famously said, give me mastery over the channel for six hours, and I'll be master of the world. And so, he believed that literally that was all it would take, would be the, the, the home fleet's absence from the English channel for six hours would be all that would be enough, and you look at what, what forces the British had to oppose him at that time, they were trying to build a big canal across southern England, to basically just like, you know, section off that part of the country, so if the French overran it, they could defend. But the guys they hired to do it were crooks, and so it was like nowhere near done at that point. They had like eight miles done. They were trying to build these fortresses along the coast, and those weren't the snuff either. They had under 100,000 British regulars on the island. And they had a huge number of these militia forces, but they were a mess. They were not well-trained. Uh, a lot of them didn't even have firearms. They were armed with pikes. This was like a big scandal in Parliament when it came out that, you know, we've been raising all these militia forces. We're
1: safe. Don't worry about it. And then it came out
2: that, oh, yeah, these guys don't even have
1: guns. Yeah. Uh, um, how did how they go for the, for the crappies at Vinegar Hill? Uh, pikes don't really <laughs> work too much in this era.
2: Right. And, and you know, even, even if they ha- did have guns, you know, the track record in the early, the early phase of the Napoleonic Wars, the track record of old regime armies against the kind of reformed, you know, built back better French army is just abysmal, especially when you've got like the British army, they're totally untested. They just they don't know how to cope with this. And the terrain is not defensible in southern England you know, the the green and pre- pleasant land, as the song says. And so, I mean, it's hard to imagine the British resisting in any really serious way. I mean, I think that would have been a uh, a laugher, as they say, in, in British soccer. I'm, I mean, it would have been, uh, you know, the, the Grande Armée just sweeping up the country. It's, you know, the British were really right to focus so much of their security on, on the Navy because the chances of holding off the French on the land once they landed was just... I mean, again, there's just no way to picture it, really.
0: So they take out England. How does that affect world history? We have Napoleonic England, Napoleonic France united into one power base. The dream of the 14th century accomplished. What goes next? Well, I mean, I think
2: uh, it's hard to imagine uh, the French being defeated after that. You know, this is before Austerlitz. This is before uh, Jena Auerstedt, so... This is the, when Napoleon is at, well, Napoleon and his army are at the height of their powers. And without British assistance, it's hard to, I mean, look at how poorly the great powers did against him with British assistance in the coming two years. So imagine without that, how badly they would have, you know, just, ha, you know, been destroyed. And then you're left with a world where, um, you know, everyone west of modern-day Poland, basically, is under French domination. Very easy to imagine Napoleon cutting a deal with the Russians. As I mentioned earlier, that had always been his goal to, you know, let's find the line where my stuff separates from your stuff and then call it a day and be friends. And, um, you know, without the British complicating things, I mean, it, it did happen in our universe just with the complication of the Russians having this relationship with Britain, which ultimately resulted in the in the uh, the agreement being destroyed, there wouldn't be that pressure in this world. So I, I think you know they sign Russia and France some sign some version of the Treaty of Tilsit as they did in our world, and that sets the stage for the next you know period of European history, with Western Europe under French domination and you know Eastern Europe uh, under the control of the Tsar, and that's that's that.
1: And that brings us back then to an inevitable American French conflict, right? Right. That would yeah.
2: Because you know, I I gotta imagine that a lot of those um those British um upper class would not have accepted their country being dominated they'd by the French and would US. have left.
0: They'd be yeah, the like US, be Canada, like a rump the Caribbean. Exile. Yeah, they'd be like a rump exile elite constantly calling for war against the french in the middle of the 19th century not only that a french that maybe would have been more liberal in certain regards so then how do you see that playing out if if like there, again germany is basically pacified britain is basically pacified though its elite flees to the dominions or former colonies and forms like an upper class there a very powerful proto lobbying group what does that mean for the united states and france over the course of the 19th century do you get a civil war in the united states do you get the united states trying to do a great power conflict much earlier matt what do you think
1: i mean it's it's easy to imagine the civil war happening earlier i mean there was already a uh a secessionist movement of New Englanders responding to the uh, Anglo-American conflict that the Democrats focused on during their terms. Uh, It's very easy to, and we had the quasi-war under the Adams administration. It's easy to see uh, those uh, interests persisting and sharpening to the point where that uh, that sectional fracture point that was built into the American constitutional order gets tested much earlier and much more dramatically.
2: I also think actually you would get, you would see in a not dissimilar dynamic in a French dominated Europe. I think there would still be, um, you know, in our, in our universe, b- big sort of status quo upending wars always create kind of a reaction down the road. Um, you know, for us, we had, you know, that we had the 60s after World War II. Uh, we had the 1848 revolutions after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. And I think there would have been a similar. Um, state of affairs in you know, a French-dominated Europe. And in, the, in, in our 1848, um, the rebels, you know, there were sort of two animating forces, the nationalism and liberalism. With a sort of liberal empire, you know, cosmopolitan and pluralistic as Napoleon's empire was, maybe the forces rising up to oppose that in the post-war, you know, unrest are nationalist and conservative. Um, and maybe we, there's kind of a almost like a proto-fascist springtime of the nations in 1848. Um, you know, with kind of right-wing, romantic German nationalists, um, you know, trying to topple this this decadent uh, uh, this decadent frog
1: empire. That's but, true, but you would also have that uh, working class uh, proto-socialist current that is in 14, 1848 too. And if you have this, globe, this cosmopolitan liberal empire, could you not also see the rise of a more coherent and uh, culturally connected uh, and, and uh, autonomous uh, socialist uh, resistance in this same moment then?
2: And there is precedent for that because, um, you know, that, that is how the French revolutionaries dealt with uprisings from the right, is by empowering the left. You know, it's not impossible to imagine that maybe, you know, Napoleon Third obviously would have had a very different life if his uncle had been successful. You know, maybe Napoleon Third, in the moment of crisis in, the, in his version of 1848, decides he's got to arm the workers, you know, to put down the revolutionaries. That could be a very interesting counterfactual.
0: And to me, what's most interesting to that counterfactual is it raises the question of 1914, right? What if the workers have— Decades more of being integrated amongst what in our world became national spaces, but in their world is are, are much looser. There's there's more freedom of movement. There's easier for easier freedom of movement. There's novel institutions that are created. Maybe there's sorts of <laughs> liberal educational institutions in Germany that didn't really exist in quite the same way. And so you get a, a working class that recognizes itself as such, partially because there's just more communication between a French and German working class. I mean. As, as you guys know, Eugen Ve- Weber's famous book from peasants into Frenchmen, he argues that, like in France, <laughs> that some of these languages were, were not mutually intelligible. But what if you have like a mutual intellig- uh, intelligibility in every sense of the word develop over the 19th century? I think you you see a much more viable socialist movement much earlier. Well, and and, and you know socialism. Is I think more amenable. I mean,
2: obviously no capitalists are amenable to socialism. That's kind of a silly line of argument. But the style of thinking of sort of French managed capitalism is more, you know, has more crossover with socialist thought than the pure laissez-faire Anglo-American style um, capitalism does. So again, it's one of those things that's such a that's such a big, broad question. It's almost hard to um, you know, pick one direction to take it in.
0: Well, it's interesting to me because it raises this fundamental issue. In our actual world, the forces of the bourgeoisie basically tilt right. What if there's a world where they like tilt left? How much would that actually change things? And they would have to tilt left to to, to keep down the sort of romantic reactionary German nationalists that almost certainly would have arisen in the 19th century.
2: And, you know, there is, you know, there, we, we do see echoes of that in our world where, you know, the you know, like, for instance, if you look at, like, uh, French mobilization in World War I is very much in that kind of in that wheelhouse of sort of center left bourgeoisie defend the republic uh, from the, you know, the, the barbaric, you know, Teutonic autocracy. Um, maybe who knows? Maybe in their, in that world, kind of the Great Crusade is is uh, against the Russians. Maybe the, that that um, that detente between you know, Napoleonic Western Europe and and Russian-dominated Eastern Europe breaks down, and maybe over Poland, um, which would would be an outstanding issue in that world.
1: And, and, and Marx is, said that it would be like one thing that would have organized the working class towards uh, self consciousness and power would have been a war with Russia like he 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 endorsed that in 1848 like the way to get the german nation to not uh allow its revolutionary moment to pass was to push forward for a conflict with russia that would have in marx's mind would have pulled the german nation headlong into uh, a socialism of necessity basically
2: in the same way that the uh the war with
0: austria did in
1: the french revolution
0: and if, yeah, if right, you could have ahead. that
1: play out with the same social forces uh, being unleashed.
0: Right. Any final thoughts on Napoleon or hinge points with Napoleon before we call it a day? Uh,
1: Yeah, he's my number one pick for a guy that I just, I look at and I'm like, man, that is the ultimate five-tool player. And I just imagine if you could just have him on your team, you know, at certain key moments, like, damn.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's one of those you know build build your team for 20 bucks even even if he's 15 bucks you pick Napoleon.
1: You absolutely pick Napoleon. I also just think
2: I mean he's such a perfect um you know I almost chuckled when you sent me the outline for this and, and there were so many topics cuz normally you guys talk tackle like one. But that's the thing with Napoleon is that he he was I mean like great man theory of history is discredited for very good reason. But if there ever was someone for whom it was true it was Napoleon he just was so good at putting himself in the key position. And so there are so many different hinge points that revolve around him because he was in a a relatively, uh, well, not relatively, extremely unusual position in world history of being able to just make decisions about things like this. And so you can picture all these, you know, situations where if he'd just gone the other way, things could have been different.
1: And And he was unable to because, you know, we all, none of us know what we don't know. You know, yep. and uh, like the one that strikes me is the, mo- the one that, uh, from the top of the episode, the most plausible alternative. If he allies with Toussaint, sends the letter. Uh, and we know f- that going along with Toussaint would have been not just in hindsight the right decision. At the time, there was plenty of evidence in front of Napoleon's face that there was no way to reimpose uh, French rule towards the end of reimposing slavery uh, onto uh, Santa Diego. It could not be done. The British had proven it.
2: Yeah. Well, he, he sent someone to Haiti to, you know, report on this question who told him our only shot is Tucson. That was his own official
1: envoy's read on the situation. And, and like, so what was on the other side of the ledger? Like, yes, Josephine was the daughter of planters and they had that fucking, uh, the, that lobby in his ear. But at the end of the day, it's racism. Mm-hmm. It's just, he cannot take the idea of, of, uh, of coming to some sort of agreement among equals with someone like Toussaint, it, it offended him at a, at a at a level that warped his vision. And like, that's why he's such an amazingly compelling figure, because you have in him like the full tragedy of humanity, like how you can have access to pretty much limitless gifts and the ability to recognize opportunity, but we are all shaped by forces that we can never fully comprehend and understand their impact on our decision-making and understanding of the world.
2: Yeah, and Napoleon had been an abolitionist in his youth. You know,
1: it goes to show you,
2: uh, The the man who probably arguably did the most for the cause of slavery in modern times, Napoleon Bonaparte, had been, as an idealistic young man, a committed opponent of slavery. It goes to show you that, you know, those convictions don't amount to much if you don't hold on to them when the rubber meets the road.
0: And on that tragic note, Everett Rummage, host of The Age of Napoleon, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. (laughs)